Hello, and welcome back to the Living Well Podcast by Jefferson Health. I'm Carly Williams. And I'm Jess Lopez. In this episode, we sat down with Dr. Martha Simmons, a family medicine doctor at Einstein Family Medicine at Logan Plaza, now a part of Jefferson Health, to talk about safe sex and sexually transmitted infections, or STIs. Dr. Simmons provides a stigma-free overview of STIs, both the kind that can be cured, including syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas, and the kind that are incurable but treatable, including hepatitis B, herpes simplex, virus, HSV, HIV, and human papillomavirus, HPV. And at the end of the episode, don't miss Dr. Simmons debunk common STI myths, like if it's possible to get an STI from a public toilet seat. There's a lot to cover, so let's get into it. Here's our interview with Dr. Simmons. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Dr. Martha Simmons. I am a family doctor working at Einstein at our Family Medicine Logan Plaza location. As part of that role, I provide primary care to folks of all ages. I have a special interest in reproductive health, LGBTQIA care, and I do non-operative obstetrics as part of my practice. One of the things you're going to note me doing throughout the podcast is I'm going to be choosing my language carefully. I do a lot of work with our LGBTQIA patients and I work with our pride program. And so because of that, I know that not everyone with a vagina identifies as a woman and not everyone with a penis identifies a man. And when I'm talking about medically and infection wise, what really matters is what genitals you have. So your gender identity doesn't really matter. You'll hear me using the language people with vaginas, people with penises, people capable of pregnancy or people who are pregnant, just to make sure I'm including everybody in the terms and not only people who are cis, meaning that their gender that they were assigned at birth matches their current gender. I'll also be using the term y'all and folks because those are naturally gender neutral plural terms and I like to use them. To start off, let's talk about the state of sexually transmitted infections in the U.S. right now. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported a continued increase in new cases of syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea since 2021. So we're wondering what is behind this surge. Has something changed in the previous decades or has COVID played a role in this at all? I think there's a few different factors behind the surge in some of these really common infections. And I think COVID is a big part of it. I think we're seeing in all areas of medicine, people were just not having good access to healthcare for most of 2020 and 2021. And so people who were getting regular testing just weren't getting their regular infection testing. We're seeing this with things like pap smears and other cancer screenings as well. And I think unfortunately, we're going to be seeing the impacts of the COVID pandemic on health for many years to come outside of the direct effects of the virus on people. The other thing, and I don't bring this up to scare people, but because I think it's important for people to know is that resistance to antibiotics is rising in these infections. Mm. And so that means that chlamydia was treated pretty commonly with a one dose medicine is now not being treated as effectively without antibiotics. So the CDC actually recommended to move to treating it with a week of antibiotics. Same with gonorrhea, the dosage of that antibiotic had to increase for that one. And so I think that that's kind of another piece of it is that our infections are still curable, but are becoming harder to treat. 
Can you talk a little bit about the difference between STD and STI? That's a great question. So in a lot of times when we're just talking, we use the term STD and the term STI interchangeably. The correct term that we should be using is STI. So STI stands for sexually transmitted infection, and that's just more accurate. These are infections. I think the word disease, in addition to not being accurate, also has some stigma associated with it. And so STI is just a little bit less stigmatizing and more accurate language. How do you generally advise patients who come in and are wondering how should they be practicing safe sex? So when I'm talking to patients about having safe sex, that conversation really starts with finding out what their sexual practices are. And like I mentioned, I don't really care about the genders of your partners. What I care about are what parts of yours touch other people's parts, which of your genitals touch other people's genitals. So if you have a vagina, do you have penis and vagina sex, or do you have sex with other folks who have vaginas? And so by first finding out what your sexual practices are, then I can find out what your risks are and we can tailor that discussion to you. It's easy to just say everyone use condoms and condoms are amazing, but the conversation is a little more nuanced than that. So, you know, if somebody is having peanut insertive or receptive penis and vagina sex, then there are external condoms or internal condoms that can be worn in the vagina that are super great at preventing infections. And that's also really good for people who are having anal sex, either insertive or receptive. If somebody is having oral sex, other barriers can be used actually like dental bands, which are barriers that go over the vagina for oral sex. So there's a lot of different options and that's going to look different based on your sexual practices. The other thing to think about, and we're going to talk about, I know we plan on talking about this a little bit more later, is that for some people... PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV is part of their safe sex plan, especially for folks who are at increased risk of HIV. And like you're saying, what are some of the other ways that you can be protecting yourself? One thing for some people not having sex at all is the right choice, although that's a hard choice. And, you know, sex certainly is part of being an adult and having a good, healthy sex life is a normal part of life. But for some people, choosing their partners wisely or not having sex at all feels like the right choice for other folks. Those barriers that I talked about, so either male or female condoms, to be more accurate, condoms that go on a penis or condoms that go inside a vagina, and then other barriers for oral sex, like dental dams, can all be super helpful. And then, like we talked about, PrEP, which is either... Pills taken daily, pills taken just as needed, or actually a a brand new shot to help prevent HIV. So medication that you actually take before being exposed to HIV to help prevent getting that infection. Do you still recommend using a condom while taking PrEP? Yes, definitely. PrEP works best when it's combined with condoms. PrEP will protect against HIV, but it won't protect against other infections. So it's really important to combine those two. And what would you say is the most common STI that you see in patients? In my patient population, the most common STI that I see are the big three, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas, mm. with trichomonas being one of a very, very common one among my patient population. Of course, it's important though, that even though I'm saying gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas are among the most common ones that I see, syphilis is making a comeback. 
for many years, many of us thought of syphilis as something that just was for people with penises who had sex with other people with penises, wasn't really something that everyone had to worry about, but we're noticing an increase in new cases of syphilis, especially on people with vaginas of reproductive age here in Pennsylvania. So definitely syphilis should still be on everyone's radar as well as HIV, of course. There a reason that that's making a comeback? I think it is probably related to the reasons that the other infections are, are becoming more common and just not as much testing. I'm curious about the patients who do experience getting an STI. Is there a lot of shame accompanied to that? Because when you talk about how common they are, it's like something people I don't think openly talk about. Yeah, definitely. In my practice, I spend a lot of time talking about stigma and shame with patients because getting diagnosed with a sexually transmitted infection for a lot of people feels like a failure Mm -hmm. or it feels like you're dirty. And, you know, really that's the farthest thing from the case. These are infections that happen. They're incredibly common. And the important thing is to get tested regularly and encourage your partners to also be tested and to have open, honest conversations with your partners about testing and protecting yourselves. And those conversations are really hard and people don't think that they need to have those conversations or don't need to protect themselves. And so we wind up putting just a lot of emotional weight on these infections, which at the end of the day are just infections. They don't mean that you're a bad person or a dirty person. It's just, you know, something that happens to folks. Mm -hmm. If you do have a diagnosis of a sexually transmitted infection, are you able to engage in any sexual activities while on the treatment? We're talking about STIs as a whole, kind of knowing that each one is a little bit different. So in general, for a sexually transmitted infection, if it's one of the ones that will go fully away with antibiotics, so those are generally syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and trichomonas, If it's one of those that can go fully away with antibiotics, you should not engage in sex until both you and any sex partners have completed the antibiotics. And that helps keep you from passing it back and forth. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that we can cure and they go fully away. Now, there are other sexually transmitted infections that we treat and can control, but they don't generally go all the way away. So those are HSV or herpes, as well as HIV which if untreated and kind of affects your immune system can lead to AIDS. HIV and AIDS can definitely be controlled. People can be on antiviral medication that leads them to have undetectable or near zero levels of the virus in their blood. And those folks can actually safely have sex with partners without passing along HIV. Although we of course also recommend considering condoms or for their partner to be on that medication called PrEP that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And then people with herpes generally are most infectious around the time when they have a outbreak. And so generally we recommend not having sex if, or having any kind of contact with a herpes outbreak, whether it's on your genitals or on your lips until that's healed to prevent spreading it. What are the symptoms to look out for, for any of these STIs? And do you always have symptoms? But with any of the STIs, many of them don't have symptoms at all. So that's where having you and your partner get tested regularly can be really helpful, especially in folks with penises. Many of them will have 
some of the most common infections and not have any symptoms at all. Definitely always important to get tested no matter what. Some common symptoms that should prompt you to get testing and to get checked out by your doctor can be if you have um, discharge from either the penis or the vagina, pain with and burning with urination can be urinary tract infection can also be STI, any kind of sores or bumps or growths that don't seem normal on your genitals, you know, always get those checked out. HIV, people often think about that one often doesn't have any symptoms at all. Sometimes when you're first infected, you can have a fever and some kind of really swollen lymph nodes, but that can be the symptom of a lot of other viruses. But if you are having high fevers and notice swollen bumps in your groins or neck, that's always something to get checked out by your doctor, not necessarily HIV. There's many things that can cause that and not trying to create a panic, but just so that people are aware. Mm -hmm. And as a follow-up to that, should you start getting screened when you're sexually active? And then how often do you suggest people get screened? Great question. And it's a little bit different for each infection for that reason. And it also depends on the sex that you're having. So for that reason, I have a lot of patients who come in and they say, I want the full infection testing, test me for everything. And that's going to look potentially a little bit different based on who you are and who you have sex with and what type of sex you have. So that's definitely a great reason to go to your doctor and kind of have that really good conversation about your practices. But yes, in general, recommend getting tested when you first have sex. And then if you have new partners or you have any sexual encounters that you're concerned about getting retested. And if you're somebody who is having multiple partners who might not be using condoms or other barriers all the time, consider getting tested as frequently as every three months and talking to your doctor about that prep medicine. And you kind of already went into this a little bit, but what are the different tests for STIs if someone does want the full workup? In general, for somebody who I'm going to do the full workup for, we'll do testing for chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas. That can be either off of urine or a swab. If you are somebody with a penis, we generally do it off urine. The only reason to do a swab is if you're having discharge. So don't worry and think that your doctor is going to do a swab in your penis every visit. Generally, we do urine. If you have a vagina, it can either be a swab that you do or the doctor does or urine. We can also do it off of the same sample when we're doing a pap smear, if you're having a pap test done. Mm -hmm. And then we would generally also combine that with blood work for HIV and syphilis. And then one infection that I haven't mentioned too much about yet is hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. Hepatitis C can be sexually transmitted. It's much more likely to be transmitted by sharing needles or sharing pipes used to smoke crack cocaine, but can be sexually transmitted. And we have great curative treatments for it now. We can totally cure it, which is relatively new. So the CDC now recommends that everybody get tested for hepatitis C at least once in their lifetime and more frequently if they are at risk. And then hepatitis B is another hepatitis. We have a vaccine for that one that most people get growing up, but definitely can be sexually transmitted. And again, more commonly transmitted through sharing needles, but that's also something to consider checking and seeing if you are immune to it. And if you aren't, then you can get the shots and not have to worry about hepatitis B. How and where can people get tested? And what does that process entail? 
people can get tested for infections in multiple settings. So one of those can be reproductive health clinics like Planned Parenthood. The city health centers are also great resources. And then with your primary care provider, whether that's a family doctor, an internal medicine doctor, or an OBGYN, those are all really great places to get testing. Generally in my office, what testing would look like is making an appointment. I would see you go over your history to determine your risk level and what testing you need. Generally, we test the parts that touch other people's parts. So knowing that full sexual history is not just me being nosy, it helps me know what testing is best for you. And then in my office, we're lucky to be able to collect blood here. So we would have you either give urine or collect a swab or swabs as needed because sometimes people will get oral or anal testing as well. And then we would draw your blood and communicate the results to you. Some places like some of the health centers and Planned Parenthood have rapid HIV testing, which is a really great resource for people. And that can be HIV testing that is done with a finger prick or a mouth swab. And you can actually get those results before you leave the office. So that is a really great way of testing that some places are able to offer as well. And could you explain what the triple site testing is? Absolutely. Triple site testing is testing any of the sites that you have sex at. So if you only have oral sex, meaning you're giving oral sex, so you're the one using your mouth and somebody else's genitals, then it doesn't make much sense to check your genitals for infection. And even if you are having both, you know, let's say I'm somebody with a vagina and I'm having penis and vagina sex as well as oral sex, it is actually possible to be positive from one spot and not the other, even if you are having sex. So what triple site testing is having that good conversation about what type of sex you have, what protection you're using, and then testing not just your kind of genitals, not just your penis or your vagina, but also potentially your throat and your anus for infection as well. Um, And one last follow-up in our previous conversation, you mentioned how sometimes couples can come in for testing together. Yes. I think it's really great when people want to be proactive about their health and in a relationship, do it together. So I absolutely have patients who will come in along with their partner. Of course, we only see people together if they give permission and make sure to check in with everyone separately as well. But when we have people coming together to get tested, then they both know they're getting tested and they're doing it regularly. And I think that's a really great way that couples can be proactive about their health. And the other piece of that is, you know, in a lot of people's minds, testing is just a responsibility of people with vaginas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's only testing slightly more than 50% of the people, right? And so we're missing this huge group of people who are actually more likely to have infections that don't have symptoms at all. So when people come in together as a couple or just encourage the person with a penis to come in, then we're getting that other part of the population who just doesn't get tested as frequently. Do you think that the reason why people with vaginas are tested more regularly is because they're seeing something that they're concerned about? Or like, I'm wondering about that dynamic. There's a few different reasons that people with vaginas get tested more regularly. Number one, people with vaginas are more likely to go to the doctor in general. A primary care patient population is much more people with vaginas and people with penises because they come to the doctor. And since certainly not all people with penises, but the stereotype is we see kind of cis men or people with penises who identify as male when their female partner makes them come in. <laughs> so 
definitely, we just have more opportunities to do testing for people with vaginas. And I think they're often a little bit more in tune with what's going on as well. That tracks for sure. And then there's also just this societal idea that, you know, again, that this is the responsibility of people with vaginas. Mm -hmm. That's also kind of a a societal standard. Okay. I'm curious about what are some of the most common concerns or questions that your patients raise? Whenever I'm diagnosing someone with a sexually transmitted infection, there's lots of questions. One of the most common ones that I get is, how did I get this? When did I get this? And that's also one of the hardest questions for me to answer. The doctor can never tell you exactly when you got an infection. If you have a positive test now, and I have a past negative test, I can say, you know, for example, you got tested with me three months ago and you were negative and now you're coming in and you're positive for chlamydia. I can only say, well, you got it sometime in the past three months, but it can't tell me which partner brought the infection into the relationship and it can't tell me exactly when. So that is a super common question. And I completely understand why people want to know. Just unfortunately, I can't answer that one satisfactorily. Yeah. As we've been talking, this scene from Sex and the City had popped into my brain where Samantha had never been tested for HIV, I think, in her entire sexual history, which of course on the show is very vast. And it was a lot of fear stopping her from like, what happens if I do have it? And I'm wondering, even during her screening process, when the woman asked how many sexual partners have you had, she was like, this week, like, it was kind of still like jokey, but I feel like other people could probably relate to that. Maybe not having the answers that they feel like they need to give or feeling nervous about what happens if something comes back positive. I'm wondering your advice for patients who could feel like, what if I don't have the right answers? And what if I'm just scared to find out? Coming to a doctor and bearing your soul about your sex life can be really intimidating. Mm -hmm. I would say though, if you have a doctor who makes you feel less than or intimidated or not validated when sharing your sexual history with them, get another doctor, Mm -hmm. right? That's not okay. I ask my patients a lot of personal questions to know how to best serve them. I literally do not care less how many sex partners you had, except that like, oh, okay, we should probably test you. Because really, if you don't feel safe giving an accurate sexual history, then you're not going to get the care that you need. So I think that's one thing. The other piece of testing for anything is it's really common human nature to say, I'm afraid of what the results will be of this test. I don't want to do the test. And that is such common thinking And it's, when we think about it, it's really dysfunctional, right? Because if you, yes, while you're sitting here, not knowing you're in the bliss of ignorance, but you're not handling and treating something appropriately. As we talked about, many of the STIs are curable. Even those curable ones, chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas can cause severe pelvic infections for folks with vaginas, can lead to problems getting pregnant in the future. So certainly if you don't have any symptoms and you're not getting tested for those, you could still be having consequences in the future. So just to protect yourself, you know, getting over that barrier of being scared to get tested and do it. And then for the ones that aren't curable, that will stick around with you for a while, like HIV, you know, for your lifetime, like HIV, you know, it can be really challenging. 
And we've got amazing treatments now. We have these the antiretroviral medications that have made HIV look much more like a chronic disease, like diabetes or hypopressure. It really, really is a chronic medical disease that we can manage and that people can live incredibly healthy lives with. And kind of, you've been mentioning Dr. Simmons about being able to have a trustworthy and comfortable conversation with your healthcare provider. Sex education isn't something that all people receive and they might feel like you don't know what you don't know. So it's really important that people feel like they are safe when they're talking to their healthcare provider and that they can provide that information so that you can share better insight and treatment options. Absolutely. And yes, sex education in the United States is really hit and mess. If you went to a Catholic school, you might not have gotten any at all, or it might've been never ever have sex or you'll get an STD and die. And even if you did attend a public school and got pretty good sex education, there's definitely things that got left out. So absolutely, your doctor should be a resource for you to ask questions. There's no stupid questions when it comes to your health. And again, if you feel like your doctor is not somebody who it's safe for you to talk about sex practices and safe sex with, get another doctor. Do you provide the HPV vaccine? And when do you have those conversations with parents about the HPV vaccine and being able to prevent cervical cancer? HPV is really important to talk about. We haven't really talked about it yet because it is a little bit different from the other sexually transmitted infections and in that we don't routinely test for it except with pap smears, which are a screening test for cervical cancer. But HPV or human papillomavirus, which is the same virus and different kind of strains or types of it can cause cancer and different strains or types of it can cause warts, genital warts, but it is technically an STI. It is such a common STI that we say that most people are exposed to it the very first time they have sex. So it is incredibly common. And we have an amazing vaccine for it that is effective against the major strains that cause abnormal pap smears and cancer. And actually we're talking about cervical cancer. HPV can also cause throat cancer. And so the vaccine protects against cancer and also against warts. That vaccine also works better. Just your body responds to it better when you're younger. So mm -hmm. for that reason, the HPV vaccine is actually recommended to start as young as age nine. So when I'm seeing patients that age, I'm presenting them with the vaccines that were, are required for school, which is usually at that age, the meningitis vaccine, and then also recommending that they get the HPV at that same time, along with their regular vaccines. The other great news about that vaccine though, is that while we know that it's most effective when you're younger and we try to get patients of all genders to get it when they're growing up, it does have some effectiveness even after you've started to have sex when you're older. And the CDC recently expanded the upper limit of the age you can get that to 45. So definitely people who have not been vaccinated it really wasn't around when they were younger or their parents didn't want them to get it. If you're under 45, talk to your doctor now is likely covered by your insurance and may still be a good option for you. Awesome. Can we talk about STI prevention in older adults? Let's just say if someone is in their sixties and in a monogamous relationship, should they still be getting screened? Older folks are still at risk of sexually transmitted infections. 
something that happens is people with vaginas will go through menopause, not be capable of pregnancy anymore and stop thinking about infections. And, and so stop using things to prevent infections like condoms and other barriers. So certainly don't forget about infections just because you can't get pregnant anymore. Still a real risk. We do see outbreaks of different infections in nursing homes. That's not uncommon. Whether somebody who's in their 60s with just one partner needs to get tested, I think it's really up to the person. I offer testing to all of my patients at least once a year if they're having a wellness visit or the first time I'm meeting them if they aren't having a wellness visit. And I let people choose. I love it when people feel really comfortable to talk to me about their sex lives. And I also acknowledge that you might not want to get into it with me that yes, I only have one partner, but also he has another partner. So I, I always offer it to people. So it's kind of an opt out and, and let people also decide their own risk and whether or not they want to have testing. Okay. So we talked about doing a lightning round of facts and myths on STIs. So the idea here is it doesn't have to be like fact myth with no explanation, but like a faster pace, if that feels right. So the first one is you can only get one STI at a time. So definite myth, unfortunately, you can get infected with as many STIs at one time as you are exposed to. All STIs can be curable. So another myth, many STIs are curable. So specifically gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas, and syphilis. And then there are some that aren't like HIV and herpes, and then the hepatitis B and C can also be treated as well. Cold sores are an STI. This one's actually a fact. Not a lot of people know this, but the herpes virus or the HSV virus is the same virus that causes cold sores and genital herpes outbreaks. It just depends on the part of body it's on. It used to be one was always on the lips and two was always on the genitals. But if you can imagine with oral sex, things move around. So really... It can be the same virus, just we call it a cold sore if it's on your lip, and we call it genital herpes if it's on your genitals, but it is actually the exact same virus. Interesting. But I just like a follow-up thought is breaking our lightning round rules. But cold sores can be passed, and I don't know this, but if you have one and you kiss a baby, you could pass it on to the baby so that it's not always transmitted sexually. It's just contact. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's just contact. And if you think about it, it's the same with the genitals. It's just contact. True. So we have all this weight to it being like an STD and it being general genital contact, but it's really just, it's a virus. It's not discriminating. It's just, if you make contact with somebody with a sore, no matter where it is on their body, you're at risk of getting herpes. And so definitely if you have oral herpes, don't kiss your your tiny baby children and nieces and nephews until that's healed. You can't get an STI from having oral sex. Another myth, you absolutely can get an STI from having oral sex. HIV can be transmitted orally. And then of course you can get gonorrhea and chlamydia in your throat. You can get an STI from a public toilet. This is a very common myth. A lot of patients ask me, when they get their test results, is it possible I got it from a toilet? And no, unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, because we want our public toilets to be safe. But unfortunately, when you're hoping you didn't get it from your partner, you cannot get an STI from a toilet. Most STIs go away on their own. 
So this is a myth. Some STIs can actually go away on their own. You have an abnormal pap smear and an HPV infection. Your body can often heal that and get rid of that infection. But the majority of STIs are going to need treatment to go away, whether that's an antibiotic or an antiviral medication. Only people with multiple partners get STIs. Huge myth. And again, we have all this stigma, right? But anyone who's sexually active can get an STI. You can build immunity to STIs. This is such a great example of a myth. You cannot build immunity to STI. Just because you had chlamydia before does not mean that you can't get it again. You still need to make sure that you get treatment and then protect yourself going forward. If your partner has an STI, you'll see it. A myth that you can see STI. Many of these you can't see. They don't have symptoms at all. You can't look at your partner's penis and go, okay, that's a safe penis. You really have to protect yourself or get testing to know for sure. And if you get checked and you're STI free, your partner doesn't need to get checked as well. It's again, a really common myth here that only one partner needs to get checked. And definitely it is the responsibility of both of the partners in that couple or however many sex partners are in the relationship to get checked to make sure that everyone's safe. And that concludes our lightning round Fact First Myth STI edition. We're also wondering, Dr. Simmons, if you could share how long you would test positive if you have an STI. How long you test positive for after an infection is different for the infection. Some of the infections, and it's based on the type of test that we do. So gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas, the test that we do looks for the DNA, like the genetic material from the infection. If you can imagine, you might've taken your antibiotics and the organism causing the infection is dead, but it's still around. There's still some DNA. So you can test positive for a couple of weeks after being treated. For those, as long as you don't have any symptoms, we don't generally recommend getting retested until three months, unless you are somebody who still has ongoing symptoms or you're somebody who is pregnant. And then we do recommend getting retested sooner. Syphilis is a little bit tricky in that some of the blood tests for syphilis may actually stay positive even after treatment. How we usually monitor response to syphilis treatment is to watch the level of that blood test over time and make sure that it goes down and doesn't come back up. Be sure to check the show notes for additional resources. And reminder that we publish full episode transcripts on Living Well. We'll include the link to that page. If you enjoy our podcast, we truly appreciate a rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if there are any topics you'd like to hear more about, please email us at livingwell at jefferson.edu. Production support for today's episode provided by Brittany Raffalak and Barbara Henderson. We're your hosts, Jess Lopez and Carly Williams. Thank you for listening and stay safe.